Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. We got a great one today. You know, for a change. Dr. Anthony Fauci. The head of NIAID, of course, is uh, part of the National uh, Institutes of Health. I worked with Dr. Fauci when I was in the Senate. I was a member of the HELP Committee, Health Education, Labor, and Pensions. He uh, testified before us a number of times. Also, I worked with Dr. Fauci uh, during Ebola. Minnesota, you probably don't know, is is home to a lot of Liberian uh, Minnesotans. So we had a lot of air traffic uh, between... MSP, Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport, and uh, West Africa. Boy, uh, Dr. Fauci is just a great guy. I'm so thrilled that he he joins me. First, um, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, Ted Cruz. About Ted Cruz, I once said, I probably like Ted Cruz more than most of my colleagues like Ted Cruz, and I hate Ted Cruz. It's funny because it's true. Okay, just for the hell of it, I'll tell maybe uh, a Ted uh, Cruz story or two. So uh, Amy Klobuchar, my colleague, uh, you know, my uh, senior senator from Minnesota, was doing the gridiron, okay, the gridiron roast. And uh, she would never let me write a joke. She would never let me, because she wanted to, she's very funny, and she wanted everyone to know that she wrote the jokes. But she would run them by me maybe Maybe I'd punch one or two. So she has this joke <laughs> which she says, you know, when most people think of a bad cruise, they think of carnival. But we Democrats in the Senate think of Ted. And I went, Amy, that's a really good joke, but I have a rewrite. And I gave her this rewrite, and I'm gonna you'll you'll hear it <clears throat> in this in this story. So I see here the, the, the Thursday, it's, it's the gridiron's on Saturday, and she's going around the floor. And I see that she's going to senators she's written jokes about and getting sort of, you know, none of them are really that that bad. And so she, I see her go to Cruz. And I went, oh, I want to be here for this. And she says, Ted, I've written a joke about you for the gridiron. And uh, here it is. When most people think of a difficult cruise, now she's writ- rewritten it from bad cruise to difficult cruise. because She knows Ted. When most people think of a difficult cruise, they think of carnival. Now, you remember the carnival cruises. They were just terrible, and they'd gone out to sea, and then the engines had turned off, and people were going to the bathroom, and the overflows, and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So, when most people think of a difficult cruise, she says, they think of carnival, but we in the Senate 
think of Ted. She changed it from Democrats in the Senate. So he goes, this is perfect, Ted. He goes like, what if you changed it to a challenging cruise? So now he wants difficult change to challenging. And I see her go like, oh, no, no, no. And she and he sees that and he goes like, you know what? I believe in the First Amendment. You go ahead and tell your little joke. So this is just so obnoxious. So I go like, oh, Ted, I've actually done a rewrite of Amy's joke, and I think it's better. You want to hear it? And I see Amy go, oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> but I also see her go like, I want to be here for this. So he goes, sure. I go like, okay. When most people think of a cruise as full of shit, they think of carnival. But I think of Ted. So... <laughs> And he just looked at me like he had nothing to say, and I just nodded and and took off. There's something wrong uh, with Ted. Uh, It's kind of fascinating, actually. Uh, His state of Texas, of course, was hit with a a massive, uh, tragic uh, disaster. Uh, Texans dying, folks being asphyxiated in in their garages, uh, trying to stay warm by uh, running their cars. folks freezing to death. And of course, Ted flies to Cancun uh, because he's, he's Ted Cruz. And then he lies about it because he's Ted Cruz. Conservative radio host Ben uh, Shapiro defended him uh, by claiming that anything that Cruz would have done to help Texans would have been a merely performative and nothing else. Let's play a little bit of uh, Ben Shapiro. It's not a real-time crisis that Ted Cruz, the senator from Texas, can do anything about because the senator from Texas is, in fact, in the United States Senate. He's a federal officer, right? He's a federal elected official. This is up to the mayor of Houston and, like, the governor of Texas and all the people who are state-level officials. And also, I I just wonder, what is Ted Cruz, like, did they expect Ted to go there with, like, a blowtorch and start defrosting all of the pipelines? Wow. How ignorant is this conservative radio host, Ben Shapiro? He's clearly never been in government. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of things you can do during a disaster. First of all, you can help coordinate government response. When you're a U.S. senator, you're one of only two statewide elected federal officials. And this was a statewide disaster. One of the things you do right away, of course, is find out what you can do to help. There are almost always little emergencies that you can address by contacting FEMA or FERC. Those are federal agencies. Uh, the simplest thing you can do is, is comfort people and tell them how to keep records of what they've lost so they can recoup their losses if the flood or tornado or power outage has, has caused property damage. There's always plenty to do. I used to travel with Val Grafseth. Uh, my disaster person, who cut her teeth uh, on the East Grand Forks flood in 1997. Val knows everything. And I would uh, always take my cues from Val, who I used uh, I, I call Val, Val the disaster gal. There's always lots of ways you can help. You, you don't usually really know what they are until you hit the ground. Uh, getting emergency generation to a water treatment plant, for example. Uh, you're talking to county people, to municipal people, 
who may very well have a, a very urgent need from a federal agency. It's amazing to me how a young conservative radio talk show host can spout crap without having the slightest idea what he's talking about. This guy clearly just has no clue whatsoever about how things work. That's another thing. When you go to a disaster, you learn stuff. One of the things you learn in a natural disaster, or in this case, a natural disaster combined with amazing incompetence by uh, Texas ERCOT, uh, the ironically named Energy Reliability Commission of Texas, you learn how stuff works and doesn't work. And if you're on the Energy Committee, like I was, you apply what you learn when you're talking energy policy with the Secretary of Energy just to get an understanding of how to do things like harden power generation assets so this doesn't happen again. And it's handy to know this stuff in hearings. And it's handy to know this stuff when you're passing legislation. You also learn how great people are. You want to restore your faith in humanity? Go to a disaster. Go to a flood. Go to the aftermath of a tornado. People have lost their homes. You, you see the Red Cross. You see churches giving shelter and feeding people. You see VFWs making sandwiches for the relief workers, for as long as the relief workers are there. It's awesome, actually. One of the best parts of my job was going to disasters. Ted Cruz doesn't understand that. He doesn't understand his job. So he books a family vacation to Cancun. And then, of course, he gets caught. And his first response, well, his first instinct is to lie. Of course. He's Ted Cruz. He hides behind his daughters. I was being a good dad. I was just flying my family down to Cancun and turning right back. You see, because his daughters are 12 years old and 10 years old, and his wife, Heidi, a Harvard Business School grad and executive director at Goldman Sachs, I don't know, sounds like a capable person who might be able to handle flying with a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old from Houston to Cancun. Just trying to be a good dad. Oh, you caught me lying? Well, the family, one of the families on the group text that we had sent out to invite them to spend uh, the week with us, they, they shared our, our texts with the New York Times. We thought they were really our best friends. Why would they do that? Oh, we're terrible people, and everybody hates us. That's it. That must be it. Now to Dr. Fauci, who I've been wanting to interview for uh, quite a while now, of course. Now, I tweeted out uh, a request to my uh, Twitter followers to send in questions, and I used a lot of them. These are really good questions, uh, some of which I think probably you have too. And uh, so I think you're going to really be interested in, in what Dr. Fauci uh, has to say. And uh, now, we had booked a 30-minute interview, and like an idiot, I did not bring my watch, 
and I turned my phone off so I wouldn't get any phone calls during the interview, which has happened before. That's happened before, as you know, as you probably have heard. And I, you know my line when my phone goes off while I'm interviewing someone. I always say, I keep my phone on because I need a liver. And, you know, I just always have to be alert <clears throat> if there's one available. But anyway, so I, I, I've learned to turn my phone off. We had booked a 30-minute interview. And at the 30-minute mark, uh, or just before I started to ask another question, which was how we're going to reopen the schools, which is a, has a long answer. That's going to be a long answer. And right at, at that moment, his guy, because he's incredibly busy, his guy says, okay, this will be the last question. And I realized I was at the 30-minute mark. And I then said, you know what? I want to be the guy who honors the 30-minute thing because I want to get another interview. And then <laughs> Dr. Fauci said, okay, we'll give you another one. So uh, I think you're going to uh, enjoy this and also uh, get a, a lot of it. I think you're going to be really interested in what my guest has to say, you know, for a change. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You've been head of uh, uh, NIAID since the Reagan administration, right? Yeah, 1984. This is my seventh president that I'm serving. Uh-huh. And in order of best to worst. No, I'm, <laughs> I was going to have you order. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I know. I want to talk about science and not politics. Okay, I that's know that good. you want to, too. Okay? I, I know you want to move forward. I, I have a scientific question that does talk about uh, Scott Atlas and herd immunity in light of the new stuff we're finding out about variants. You know, in herd immunity, his which would, was a terrible idea. You agree? Totally. <laughs> yeah. Basically, what he wanted to do was just nothing, <laughs> let people get sick, and if enough people get sick and a lot will die, eventually you'll have herd immunity. Right. And well, that that for so many different reasons is shown to be completely. I don't want. I want to use the not a too pejorative a word, but really. A non-starter. It really wasn't, you know, because what he was saying was that the peaks that you see in in outbreaks in different regions, states, and cities, that the reason it turns around and comes back down is because you've reached herd immunity, 
and nothing that you could have done made it come down. Masks don't make it come down. Physical distancing don't make it come down. Well, if that was true, then you should never have another peak after you had the first peak. But if you look at what happened in the country, we've had multiple peaks in the same city, in the same county, in the same state. So this idea that anything you do doesn't impact at all the infections is only when enough people get infected that you get herd immunity. That has been proven to be wrong in every single possible way. Now, in light of the new variants, even if you had achieved that herd immunity, which was a, would have been a disaster in terms of how people died, et cetera, am I right in understanding that people who've gotten COVID earlier now could maybe get the new variant? Yes. In fact, there's evidence from South Africa that previous infection with the original viral strain and recovery from infection did not protect you at all from getting reinfected with the variant strain. Very, very clear data from South Africa in that regard. So I just want to just emphasize as bad an idea, and you outline why that was a bad idea, it wouldn't have even, <laughs> first of all, it would have allowed the virus to uh, mutate much more. And, right. and, then, and also, it wouldn't have even provided herd immunity. Exactly. Like I said, for multiple different reasons, it's a bad idea. But that's a lot of bad. <laughs> okay. No, it is right. like a bad idea. But also, if, if we had followed it, there would have been no... Well, look, we haven't even begun to reach herd immunity yet in the absence of a vaccine. And we have 475,000 deaths. So if you really wanted to push it to an extreme and say, just let everybody get infected uh, to get herd immunity you would have had three, four times the number of deaths that we have right now, which would have been completely and thoroughly unacceptable. Okay, now let's, uh, I want to go to some specific questions that I, I asked uh, folks uh, on, on Twitter to ask some questions, and I had some. Uh, when we uh, hear that the Pfizer vaccine is 95% effective, what exactly does that number 95% mean? It means if you if you compare the infections in an individual uh, who has not been vaccinated with the number of infections of an individual who's been vaccinated in a typical randomized placebo-controlled trial in which all other things are being equal, that you decrease the likelihood of getting infected by 95%. For example, in the original Moderna study, there was something like uh, 94 infections. Four of them were in the vaccine group and 90 of them were in the placebo group. So what you do is you, you compare the number of infections in the group that received the placebo compared to those who received the vaccine. Okay, now let me, and here's the question I think a lot of people don't know the answer to, and I will get it from you. How sick can that, those 5%, with the Moderna or the Pfizer, how sick can they get? Because some people go like, well, gee, 5%, I, I don't, I don't, I, that means one out of 20 will get sick. And it doesn't mean that. I know it means in comparison to the placebo group, but you can't get 
that sick, right? Once you well, take no, it. Well, no, actually, that's a very good question, Al. Oh, thank because, you. <laughs> uh, no, it is. It's a very good question because it was 95% effective in preventing symptomatic disease, but it was virtually 100% effective in preventing serious disease. So that so-called 5% who got infected had very mild disease. None of them went on to severe disease. So in fact, if you do the other calculation, what percent of people who were vaccinated developed severe disease, it was essentially zero. Not only does it protect against getting symptomatic infection in the first place, it does a very good job of preventing, if you do get infected, in preventing you from getting serious disease. And, and we've got good news that Pfizer and Moderna have committed to delivering another 100 million doses, uh, each of their vaccines by May, is it? Yes. And uh, that will bring it to a total of 600 million doses, which divided by two, that's 300 million, and that's almost everybody. Um, right. When will every American who wants to be vaccinated be vaccinated? You know, given the fact that it logistically takes time to get tens and tens and then hundreds of millions of doses into people, the projection, and it merely is a projection, it depends on how efficiently we implement it. I would think by the time we get to the middle to end of the summer, that with the doses that will be available, the 600 million doses for 300 million people that you mentioned from Moderna and Pfizer, together with the fact that we'll get 100 million from J&J, or Janssen, and then even more from the company Novavax. With that amount of vaccine available, and we do it in a very efficient way, where you have mass vaccination centers that are open with collaboration between the federal government and the states, I would imagine by middle to end of the summer, we will have vaccinated as many people that will get vaccinated. And that will then be herd immunity, will it not? The, the percentage of people required to develop what we classically think of as herd immunity is not completely known for SARS-CoV-2, because the only way you know it is when you get to a certain percentage and then you get below it and then people start getting infected. We know what it is for measles because we have a lot of experience with measles and people then not getting vaccinated and then getting breakthrough infections. So the herd immunity percent for measles is about 90%. My estimate of what it will be for SARS-CoV-2 is somewhere between 70 and 85%. So if we can get 70 to 85% of the population vaccinated, I believe that we will have herd immunity for COVID-19. Is the number of people who don't want to get vaccinated, is that going down? Fortunately, it is going down. When you did a survey in May, you know, there was close to, you know, 40 to close to 50% of the people had some degree of hesitancy or reluctance or question. Right now, it's improved greatly so that well over 60%, maybe even closer to 70%, of people said they would seriously consider getting vaccinated. 
Uh, well, well, that's good news, but we, we want to get uh, higher if we can. It, it, Annie Slavitt, uh, who's a, a senior advisor now on, on the Corona Task Force to the president, uh, talked about the importance of getting the vaccine to those who are most vulnerable, uh, people of color, the poor, essential workers uh, who can't take off work to drive 100 miles and may not have a car to uh, get vaccinated. Are we going to be focused a lot on that? You know, yes. Um, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices is the group that advises the CDC as to what the prioritization of getting people vaccinated are. The CDC almost invariably follows their recommendations. So when you have vaccine on day one, that's enough for everybody. You don't really need prioritization. You just vaccinate anybody and everybody who comes along. But in the situation that we were faced with and are still to some extent faced with, you have to prioritize. So the prioritizations were phase one would be first to healthcare providers and to people who are occupants of nursing home and long-term care facilities. And they're pretty much, they're done or They're, they're close to done. Some mm-hmm. regions have done a good job in getting the overwhelming majority of these people vaccinated. In some areas, they haven't done as well. So we really got to get that done. But they've moved on to phase 1B, which is people with essential jobs out in society, teachers, grocery store workers, the people who make society run, as well as the elderly, 75 or age or over. The next phase is going to be people who are younger, but who have underlying conditions, namely comorbidities, which make them more at risk for severe disease once they get infected. And then you get to the last group, which is essentially everybody and anybody who wants to get vaccinated. Are there people who have a, who can't be vaccinated because of something, some condition they have? Very, very few contraindications. Since this is not a live attenuated vaccine, There are almost no safety issues, even if you're immunosuppressed or if you're on various therapies like steroids for autoimmune disease or for allergic diseases. The one group that they say don't vaccinate, just wait till they recover, are those people who are on intensive chemotherapy and the level of their white cells and their immune system is so low that it wouldn't make any sense to vaccinate them. You want to wait till they recover their immune competence. But people, for example, who have autoimmune diseases, who are on glucocorticoids or on monoclonal antibodies to block their immunological response, you should definitely vaccinate those people. There's not a safety issue there. The only issue is that you might not induce as robust an immune response as if their immune system was intact you may get a less than optimal response. But less than optimal is better than no response at all, which is the reason why we recommend that those people do get vaccinated. Okay, let me ask you the number one question that I got from folks. Now that I've been vaccinated, can I see my uh, grandchildren? (laughs) You know, that's a good question. It depends if your grandchildren, who they likely would not be vaccinated because children are not getting vaccinated yet, What's going to happen, Al, is that as, as you get into a situation that more and more people get vaccinated, 
when you have two people who are fully vaccinated? That's going to be the more relevant question. So I'm vaccinated. My daughter who lives in New England, she's vaccinated. When she comes in to see me, does she have to quarantine for 10 days the way they used to? Or does she need to wear a mask when we're together? Or can I give her a hug when I see her? And the answer right now, although there are no recommendations, will likely be yes when you get both people vaccinated. There hasn't been any official determination from the CDC about that. The one determination that they have made is that if you're vaccinated, that within a three-month period, if you come into contact with someone who's documented to have SARS-CoV-2 infection, you don't need to go into quarantine the way you had it before. But if you're vaccinated, but the other person is not, you still have to have the precautions of mask wearing, physical Because you can give it to them. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so uh, that is literally the number one question I was asked. Uh, the, the technology that allowed uh, Pfizer and Moderna to develop uh, the vaccines, uh, mRNA, is uh, a, a technology that you were somewhat instrumental in getting the research dollars for. Am I, am yes, I right? Yes, it was. I mean, uh, first of all, the messenger RNA platform, a number of people contributed to that, but they were people that my institute supported, grantees and contractors. The using of the spike protein in the right correct confirmation, which is critical to getting a maximum immune response, was actually worked out right here at the NIH by my group at the Vaccine Research Center, Barney Graham and his colleagues. That particular spike protein confirmation is used in virtually all of the vaccines that are currently being used except for one. So yes, the work that's been done both on mRNA platforms, as well as the right confirmation of the spike protein, is work that, for the most part, was supported by the NIH. And that has enabled them to come up with a vaccine in nine months. Well, you know, I think the truth of the matter is that the, the um, long-term support of basic and clinical biomedical research that has spanned multiple administrations and multiple Congresses, the work that the, I mean, the Congress has been extremely generous to the NIH over so many decades. You remember that from your time in the Senate, that in fact, we got very good support. And that support led to the basic and clinical biomedical research discoveries that led to these platforms. And how fast will they be able to make uh, vaccines for the variants? You know, that's a good question. Pretty quickly, Al, because what, what happens is that the mRNA platform and even some of the others are very flexible and adaptable to be able to switch in midstream and stick another coding sequence in there to make the protein against the variant as opposed to the protein against the original virus. Now, um, I, I do an impression of you. You do? Yeah, and it's pre-polyp surgery. 
<laughs> okay, so and it was uh there was a point at which things were spiking very badly, like in Texas and in uh Florida and elsewhere. And you did a press conference, and so here's my impression, and and here's what it was. I was I was young once too, and I like to have fun, and I understand why you would want to go to a bar, but you have to understand that you can be asymptomatic. And infect older people with comorbidities. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's pre-polyp. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. As soon as that polyp came out, my voice changed. Yeah, it was good surgery. And I understand you were out. Uh, did, did they time something while you were out? <laughs> remember remember oh, that? Yeah. They had some discussion about a policy that was a bad policy. They did it while I was... They were saying I agreed to it. And I said, how could I agree to it? I was under general anesthesia at the time that you made that decision. Th things were so bad at that point. <laughs> and I don't want to get into your relationship with uh, the president and the administration. But things were so bad that that was widely thought that they made that announcement while you were literally out. Yeah. Yeah. Strange, <laughs> strange times. Strange times. Okay, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back uh, with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We're back with National Treasure Anthony Fauci. So uh, people want to know when they're going to be able to hug each other and kiss each other. Is that going to be um, after, you know, late summer? You know, I, I again, it's going to be really dependent on a number of factors working right and falling in place. And like I said, if we can get our arms around this and get the overwhelming majority of the people vaccinated, and really do get a good blanket or an umbrella of herd immunity so that by the time we get to the end of the summer and the beginning and mid-fall, it is conceivable that we will be able to pull back and relax a number of those stringent public health measures, including things like, you know, when most of the people in a family are vaccinated, you got a very, very low risk of getting infected. I mean, particularly with the 94 to 95% efficacy, then I think you could start to think about returning to normal. Yeah, I don't think, Al, it's going to be the normal that you and I knew before the outbreak. That might take a really considerable period of time, but at least approaching some degree of normality. 
people want to know this too. They want to know, is that two years, five years, never? Oh, I don't think it's going to be never. I think five years is a little bit too much. I think it might be a little bit more than a year, depending upon how much control we get over those variants. If we can get the level of infection low so that the virus doesn't mutate and evolve very much, and you don't have many more variants that we have to deal with, you know, I think by the end of the year, you could be close to where you want to be. Another question I I had, which I thought was a really good question, is when will the entire world be vaccinated? Because talking about getting back to normal, uh, traveling, et cetera, you know, where are they in terms of vaccination elsewhere? Where, where, Where is it looking good and where is it not? Well, again, that's a critical question because that will ultimately impact us here in the United States, even if we do get the overwhelming proportion of our population vaccinated. Because since this is a global problem, you're never free of the global problem unless you solve it on a global level. So if you're talking about getting the whole world vaccinated, that likely will take a couple of years at the minimum. You know, one of the things that we need to be aware of is that this is something that's discussed at the level of WHO and beyond, is getting an organization or an agreement, which is referred to as COVAX, which is a consortium of countries and organizations like CEPI and Gavi and others that will be able to put significant resources in to get vaccines to those countries and those regions that don't have the resources to do it themselves. Because if you want to eliminate or at least get a very good control over an infection, particularly a respiratory-borne illness that's so easily transmissible, that you've got to do it at a global level. So if you ultimately want to eliminate this, we can't just do it on the rich countries. We've got to get every country to have the opportunity to get their people vaccinated. And, and what are the prospects of doing that? You know, I think if we get a global commitment from the rich countries that we can do it. Remember, we did it with smallpox. We did it with polio. We did it with measles. So there's precedent for that global approach. I think if we realize that it is not only the humanitarian right thing to do, but it's also in our enlightened self-interest, because we'll never feel comfortable to be essentially free from the threat of this unless the whole world is protected. Well, there's a lot of things in our enlightened self-interest that we somehow don't do, but thank God we have uh, an administration that I think <laughs> kind of philosophically uh, leans in that direction. Uh, speaking of, how about, uh, I heard that the uh, Biden people were a little shocked at, when they had the handoff at how uh, chaotic uh, things were. Do you have any comment on that? You know, uh, it's tough for me to comment on that, mm-hmm. uh, Al, because I was, you know, part of the uh, group although fundamentally responsible for developing the vaccine, not for devo- for, for uh, the responsibility yeah. of the distribution. I think what, what they were referring to is that there was not a really coherent plan 
of a collaboration and cooperation between the federal government and the states to implement the program for the distribution of vaccines. So it wasn't really a question of the development of a vaccine. That was a roaring success. But the question of how do you get the vaccine into the arms of people, there really wasn't a very coherent plan to do that. Let me ask you a um, a philosophical question, I think. In Ebola, I was around for Ebola and uh, worked with uh, you and uh, worked with Dr. Uh, Tom Frieden, director of the uh, CDC. Uh, Minnesota has a large Liberian population. We led a global effort there. The CDC was in Africa and identified that this was happening. It went in. It, the, our military put hospitals up. We had uh, an international effort there in, in uh, Liberia, in Africa. It seemed to me that the initial response by the Trump administration was punting it and giving it to the states. I mean, was that wrongheaded? Well, I, I wouldn't characterize it as wrongheaded, but it was not the way that I would have done it. I've always been an advocate of a very strong cooperation, collaboration, and hopefully a synergy between the federal government and the states. There was an attitude back then that you almost have an exaggerated version of federalism where the states will do things the way they want to do it because of the independence of the states. I think that works well for certain things, but not when you have a common enemy, in this case, a virus, which doesn't know the difference of a border between Louisiana and Mississippi or between North Carolina and South Carolina or New York and Washington state. You know, if you want to get this done right, you have to have a certain degree of commonality of approaches, a consistency of approach, where the federal government helps the states, provides resources, but also provides directions. We didn't have very much of that. It was really the states, in some respects, doing things on their own. Right now, if you look at the plan that has now been put forth, the strategy to address COVID 19, it's very much a balance and an interaction between the federal effort and the effort at the state and local level. So I hope that that would work much better now. In Ebola, we led a global effort. And it seems like uh, by dropping out of the uh, WHO and just the way our this last administration approached the rest of the world, that we've lost our, our global leadership role. Does it make us safer to have a global leadership role? Oh, absolutely. In fact, that's the reason why one of the first things that President Biden did was to have me make a speech in front of the World Health Organization Executive Board announcing, A, that we're going to come back into the WHO, that B, we're going to pay our fair dues, as it were, in contribution to the financing, that we were going to join COVAX, that we were going to revoke the Mexico City policy. So literally a day or two after being inaugurated, we were right back into the global scene. And, you know, and as the other members of the WHO said that 
the United States of America is back in the picture again. Yeah, I mean, the way I kind of compare uh, going, focusing on the states or giving everything to the states is that after Pearl Harbor, FDR had said, well, you know, this is uh, pretty much Hawaii's problem. Yeah, right. Um, so um, we, we are on a good path here. Is, is, is that what you're feeling right now? You know, I, I am because, you know, when I, you know, uh, even before he was uh, inaugurated, but very soon after uh, President Biden said publicly and told us, his medical team privately, that in fact, we are going to make science dictate our policies. Science will rule, we'll use evidence and data, and will be ruled by solid scientific facts that we're going to make mistakes, we're going to stumble, that will happen. But if we do, we're not going to blame anybody. We're just going to fix it. And that's a really good attitude, which even though this has only been a few weeks into the administration, it's really working very well, that everything that we talk about is based on scientific data and evidence. Imagine that. Uh, let me ask you about opening schools, and 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 I I want to be respectful of your time. Well, and Tom, we I, need to end, but I think this would be the last question. Okay, well there it is. Uh, uh, the, the, I don't have to ask this. If you got to go, you got to go. I want another interview down the road, and I I want to be the guy who went. Nope, he's got. I'm respectful of his. Well, time. that's good. We'll give you another one down the road, Al. See, because I did that. Yeah, because you're such a good guy. Hey, yeah. hey, uh, doctor, thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome, Al. Nice, nice to be talking to you. Appreciate great, it. Great talking to you. Bye. All right. Take care. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. 
There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.